Hi, I'm Adina. I'm Alex. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lore, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Adina, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Sure. Uh, my name is Adina Shanholtz, and by day, I am a software engineer on the Edge browser at Microsoft. And by night, you can find me doing knitting, circus, uh maybe making a video game, who knows. Um, mm-hmm. And honestly, I just want to tell people to make sure that you get out there and vote, but don't let your activism stop there. Make sure that you keep getting involved and keep being politically active. Sounds good. Is So is knitting and circus two separate items or is that one thing? No, there are two separate items. I was thinking about how to phrase it and I almost phrased it as fabric and circus arts. And then I realized that's Sounds like I do circus with fabric, and that is not <laughs> not quite what I meant. <laughs> well, okay, what I still don't know what you do though. So, uh, in, I've been regularly learning a bunch of cool trampoline stuff. I've been uh, doing private lessons at the Senka, which is a nonprofit circus at, in Seattle. I think they're the largest nonprofit circus organization. Uh, but I also do hooping and spinning poi and a bunch of other stuff. Wow. You didn't even have to run away to join the circus. You can just do it. Yeah, I know. It's like a, like, like a normal person. I learned in college, which, you know, surprises no one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Alex, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Sure. I'm Alex Diener, sometimes known as Them's All Took on the internet, as in they're all taken but said kind of funny. (laughs) Uh, I've been writing code since I was about six years old, and I'm right now working on a video game called Foresight Fight, which is a hybrid of a puzzle game and a traditional RPG combat system. I own multiple dance arcade machines and play Pump It Up and In The Groove at a high level. And I have an active YouTube channel where I do Let's Plays of lots of different games that interest me. I can vouch for this YouTube channel. It's a very good one. It's one of those YouTube channels that gets like 100 views a video, (laughs) which makes me a little bit sad because it's like your approach to to doing Let's Plays is so much more palatable for what I'm interested in than like the kind of people who are, I guess, who who are seeking the attention of teenagers, constantly feeling the need to be very loud and aggressive and hyper all the time. Yeah, I'm honestly pretty happy with 100 quality views over 1,000 that uh, would require me to moderate my comments a whole lot more than I have to right now. 100 views is great. That's probably for the best. (laughs) Honestly, someone should probably come up with a Dunbar's number, but for online comments and moderation. So I know that on Twitter, I think they say like 10,000 followers is when you start being unable to enjoy the Twitter experience. Start being able to. <laughs> Sorry, more so than usual. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe that's uh, from like 2012, back when Twitter was enjoyable at all. <laughs> uh, you guys ready for some topics? Heck yeah. Sure. All right, Adina, your first topic is anarcho-communism for basic bitches. Yeah, I feel kind of weird starting with this. Well, I guess it, it's fitting given my what I decided to plug. <laughs> This topic, I feel like, is pretty relevant given situations that are currently going on, like the rising creep of fascism in the United States. But I've been thinking about this for a number of years, um, and my opinions have developed over time, talking to a lot of people. I've always been considered, quote unquote, 
radical because of my views. And honestly, it doesn't take much to get you labeled like that these days, like thinking people should have health care. Jesus. <laughs> but like many people, I thought anarchists are violent and hate the government and they want to like, you know, overthrow the government, just have no government. That's what I thought anarchists were. And I, a friend back when I was living in New York went, no, 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 that's not at all. Not even a little bit. That's like, you know, what you watch stupid movies and that's what they tell you. It's more like realizing that big overarching systems are will inevitably fail people. There will be gaps, there will be holes. And what you need to do is form smaller communities and take care of each other in place of those holes. And that honestly changed my opinion. And I say for basic bitches, uh, mostly because I am one. I don't read a lot of theory. I There's a lot of books that I know I should read and I don't, or articles that I should read and I don't. This is kind of something I've slowly developed over time, realizing how right that is that the government, when developing programs or doing things that are for the greater good of the general people, tend to move really slow and create systems that have a lot of holes in them because big overarching governments don't really... I mean, it's kind of hard to create things that legally provide for every edge case and contingency. And also systems tend to be a little biased towards the kyriarchy. If you're unfamiliar with that term, it's basically every ist. So racist, sexist, uh, transphobic, you know, every, every ist kind of falls under kyriarchy. So I hadn't heard that term. It's a good term. For when you need to talk about every S. So yeah, like these systems tend to be a little biased. There's a lot of people who hated the ACA after it came out because they fell into one of those gaps or holes and it made life for them worse. And the administration's response was, well, you know, imperfect first attempt. We got to, we got to, you know, patch some of these holes and iterate and stuff. And that's, you know, a good perspective, but you know, we never got to it. It never happened. And now it's all we have. And honestly, what we need to do is in the meantime, if smaller groups were empowered to take care of their community, that would fill in the gap. Yeah. So I, I've often heard and also believed that one of the problems with the United States is that it's just too big. Like there are too many different people with with widely varying views that it's trying to be one size fits all for. And I'm wondering, like, is this what you mean by uh, empowering communities? Like, instead of having a, a, a government that's the entire US, maybe the government should be like Baltimore. I was just having this conversation with my wife. And honestly, I've been thinking about this question for a really, long, really long time. In college, uh, my junior year, I studied abroad in Japan. And one of the classes I took was globalization of Japan, which, you know, introduced me. Well, I mean, obviously, we all know a lot about globalization, because it affects us every day. Um, like, everyone knows that there's a McDonald's in like every country, you know, things like that. Um, but there was a topic introduced. And it occurred to me, is there one form of government that would be good for a globalized world. And I could not think of an answer then. And that question has haunted me for so long, especially when you have differing opinions. I know there's people, especially on the anarcho-communism scale, who lean more towards that. So say, you know, 
dissolve all borders. There should be no borders, no countries, no things like that. And honestly, if you think about human psychology, and I brought this up earlier as a joke, like Dunbar's number, if you're not familiar with it, is the idea that realistically, you can only really know about 150 people. And then after Mm -hmm. that, everyone just kind of becomes a non-entity. You don't really, you can't, they're like background characters, NPCs in your life. Yeah, Um, yeah. So like about 150 people is what you can realistically keep in your mind as like people that you consider people you know, empathize with, are real people to you. And honestly, keeping that in mind, it makes sense why very large scale governments kind of lose a lot of empathy in the way and, you know, disenfranchise large groups of people. So honestly, if there was, I'm thinking more of neighborhoods. Who are the people in your neighborhood? If communities could come together, people who are neighbors know each other, can meet each other, can get to know each other. Like you care a lot more about those people. And yeah. that said, we have learned over the course of human history that small groups can only do so much. So honestly, this is a little realizing that there are benefits to large scale groups, but our current system and probably many other future systems like on paper, like seem good and in practice will end up losing. So I wonder, I wonder personally, whether or not there could be a like a two factor system, where you have smaller groups who are more empowered to actually do things in their community who have resources who and power and backing to help on a local scale as well as have support from a big overarching entity, a government, what have you. Whether that could work, I don't know. Everything's great in theory, and you could talk about this forever, but it's hard to yeah, say. So I, I know people who live in four houses in a row, people who know each other and hang out all the time and like cook dinner together and just help each other out. It's kind of like an extended, an extended family or like a small neighborhood. And I think my aversion to the idea of like well what if what if your dunbar's number of people was just the people you lived near my aversion to that is like i i have spent zero time and energy making sure i live near people i want to ne- want to know <laughs> and i have basically never talked to my neighbors uh like the only time i ever had that in my life was when um i was a kid and you just made friends via proximity and i think that this is uh, a couple of things have led to this. One is that we have the, the the nuclear family, the idea that you live in a house and this house is the unit that you care about and it's a mother and a father and a couple of kids. And that's not how humanity lived for the vast majority of its existence. That's something that really has only been possible financially speaking or only was possible for like 50 years after World War II. <laughs> and has no is no longer really feasible. Yep. But it's still like the it's still what's considered normal. The other thing is like you have so much more opportunity to find your people on the internet than you do going next door to your neighbor and talking to them. And I do think that like I don't know, I don't know what the the actual solution to this is, but I will say that this conversation has made me kind of look forward to 
when civilization collapses and we all live in villages again. Well, there's kind of a, a, a joke in the queer community, in some parts of the queer community, that everyone's kind of ideal situation is to run away and live on a farm in the middle of nowhere and create a commune with like an extended polycule. And my version of that is more city-oriented. It would be to own an apartment building where I could provide subsidized uh, or free housing for marginalized communities, specifically queer communities, where, yes, your whole extended polycule could just kind of all live in this building with a ton of community spaces, uh, but still everyone kind of has their own living unit so that you don't have to spend a whole bunch of time with each other. Yeah, that sounds idyllic. <laughs> yeah, and so the way to do that under capitalism is for a few people in that space to have tech jobs and to, for them to pay for everybody else. Yep, <laughs> basically. And I've kind of, you know, talked about this a bit with some of my other tech friends. And I guess the biggest hurdle is all the people that I know are kind of spread out all over the US. We're not all in one place. So we could, we'd have to really struggle to pick a city. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you're right. The internet really does bring people together. And that's, you know, a globalized world. And there are so many benefits. And there's detriments because sometimes you need a hug and we don't have enough haptic suits so that your internet friends can hug you. <laughs> you just motorize two wooden planks. and <laughs> I, these, are, these are the hardest hitting problems I know. Well, yeah. And then... Lack of hugs is a problem for a lot of people right now. Man, I, I have been very socially distanced, but have been living with uh, my wife. And that's been my saving grace. I am an extrovert. And mm -hmm. part of my self-care is going out and seeing people and spending time with people and, you know, making sure I hug my friends. And man, that has taken a toll from me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine. Uh, are we ready for another topic? Yes. You sure. can move on. Uh, Alex, your topic is how I overcame my inability to stick with a project for the long haul. Yeah. So, um, as I said in my intro, I've been programming since I was about six or so. So, I've had a lot of projects uh, in the 30 years since then. So, lots of ambitious projects that I've tried to start have just... I, I found I could never stick with anything for more than a few months. And it was just this persistent problem. I'd lose interest in something and just not be able to ever actually finish it. I've released a bunch of freeware games and I realized at one point that all of the ones that I actually managed to get up on my website had been done under an external deadline. So I was aware that deadlines were helpful, but I felt like they, they had a significant cost to the quality and the scope of the things that I wanted to create. So... They got stuff out the door, but at a cost. And I just sort of had a, a chain of insights over the course of several years. Um, I noticed that in situations where I had no internet connection and couldn't really go anywhere, like for example, if I had to take my car in for something and I was stuck at the mechanic just sitting there um, back when those places didn't all have internet, seem to <laughs> now pretty much. So just sitting and waiting for work to get done in my car, if I brought a laptop along, I could be extremely productive just because I had literally nothing else to do. So thinking about that principle, uh, I tried turning off my internet at home, but that didn't really work. I had this idea occur to me to try working in small, uninterrupted chunks. So I chose half an hour as my chunk size, 
And it turned out that the thing that that enabled was kind of surprising for me. What really helped me early on was knowing that in less than 30 minutes, I could go read that new email that came in. I could go check Twitter if I want to. I could go deal with some distraction that came up that I could put off for just a little bit. Like the knowing that I had a specific break point, a, a stop to go and deal with something that's not the thing I'm trying to singularly focus on was actually the most helpful thing about that. So that helped me a lot. Um, but you would tend to work past the 30 minute mark usually? When I was working unstructured, I guess I guess I would. And I would just sort of go to a point of not so much burnout, but I guess I would either go too long or let distractions get in my way too much because I'd see this thing and think, I have to deal with this. And I didn't have a, a specific time unit to think, okay, I have to deal with this, but I can do it at this point in time. So on top of that, I sort of added this, uh, this physical ritual. So every time I get one of these 30-minute work units done, I give myself a point and I bought a, a bag of Mancala stones. And every time, every time that happens, I take a stone out of the bag and put it into a shot glass that I keep on, uh, on a shelf in the room where my computers are. And that just feels very good because it makes, it makes doing this productivity task a very physical action. So the, the extrinsic motivation helped me a whole lot. And then every morning after that, I count up the number of stones that I've put in the shot glass. And um, why do I have a shot glass? I don't even drink. <laughs> to, to put these stones in. Yeah, that's, that's its purpose. <laughs> so I count up the number of points I got the previous day. And I've set a hard minimum of one point per day for myself. So no matter what else is going on, uh, I make sure that I get at least 30 minutes of uninterrupted work on my main project. It's not always easy, but that's had a lot of real good effects where it's never been more than a full day since I last looked at this project. So I don't really lose my place on it. Right. Have you heard of uh, the... Uh, I've always heard it described as the Pomodoro technique. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I had heard of that and read about it before I came up with this, but I, I did realize afterward that, oh, this is basically Pomodoro. Yeah. Maybe a little more informal. Yeah, the the unbroken blocks of time thing is the same. Their default is twenty five minutes. Yeah, and they also do the thing where what you what you're supposed to do, and I I never I adopted this, but I never actually got the physical item, which maybe I should have. Maybe it would still maybe it would be even better. Uh, but you're supposed to have eight separate tomato shaped kitchen timers, mm -hmm. uh, and when um when you finish each timer you put that onto a different shelf to indicate you've you've completed that tomato i don't know this sounds almost like a way to sell a whole bunch of tomato clocks well, i i think that's actually exactly what it is but it does sound satisfying <laughs> yeah definitely yeah so just having something physical to uh, to anchor into definitely helped me a whole lot uh one one other nuance that i i realized about this was that I don't specify what has to happen during those 30 uh, minutes. It just, or 25 if you're doing Pomodoro, whatever. It really helps to just not have too much of a constraint. Sometimes I just sit there and think through a hard problem and take like one or two notes of it and that's, that's enough. Or sometimes I'm hammering out hundreds of lines of unit test code and that's kind of exhausting, but it has to happen. So right. just anything that can move the project forwards. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that really helped me... Um, getting a, a just a mailing list of people who agreed to uh, be spoiled on what I was working on. And I would just tell, send, I sent them uh, an email 
every week saying, this is what I did in the last week and this is what I'm going to do next week. And I don't even know, I don't even know if they read it, but just <laughs> the fact that they might have read it and might be judging like, oh, you didn't quite get it done, did you? It helped me like try to work extra hard to meet the goals that I had set. Yeah. So, actually creating some real accountability. That's interesting. Well, it's not even, it's not even real accountability so much as like the, uh, the idea of it. Right. Accountability you can think of as real. Yeah. Honestly, that seems to solve the other problem I've heard people who have uh, like Patreons and regular backers, but have a lot of rewards and you have to keep up with them every single month. I find that what I've heard is that uh, when you get behind, there's a lot of feelings of panic and shame. But if you are proactively, this is what I'm going to work on for this amount of time, it's smaller chunks rather than having to think about multiple tiers of rewards uh, over the course of a whole month. I guess a week at a time is much shorter. And it's what you are pledging to get done as opposed to the whole Patreon system. Yeah. Uh, are you ready for another topic? Sure. Uh, my topic is simulating the fluidity of natural group conversations in voice chat. So this is something I was talking about on Twitter the other day. Before COVID, I was I went to a um, a meetup called Hypoclock Game Dev and Tea Time, where something like 20, 30 people went and hung out in a warehouse filled with chairs and tables, you know, did work on their projects and chatted. And we've been trying to replicate that in Discord. And one of the major problems with it is that when you have 20 people in a chat room in Discord, they can really only ever have one conversation at once because everybody's speaking at the same volume for everybody. Mm -hmm. And we tried to solve this by, well, what if we, since we had tables of like size of four to six people in the warehouse, we can create multiple chat rooms and they all had like limited population to a similar number of people who could sit at that location. And what always happened is that everybody would sit at the same table and then when someone else showed up, rather than sitting by themselves and not talking to anybody, they would just ask for the the limit to be raised so they could fit. And they all ended up at the same table. And I would love to know how to approach this. Like the way it works in real life is that everybody sits at different tables, but since there are so few people in the room, they can still hold a conversation because they just kind of talk a little bit louder or they they don't even need to talk louder. They can just be heard by people at other tables. Um, And then as it fills up, you're limited to who you can hear nearby. Uh, but you can also do things like, oh, you can, see, you can see somebody across the room that you want to talk to. You can go over, you can walk over to them and join their conversation. Even if you can't fit at the table, you can stand there. And when I talked, when I asked people on Twitter, like, how would you approach this? They, I, I saw a half a dozen VR chat room things that did spatial audio. And I bet those are fine, except that like, I don't want to be wearing a VR helmet when I'm at Hypoclock. I want to be like, I want to do this with video, Visual Studio open. <laughs> and so, I was thinking about like, well, okay, one solution to this might be you take that same spatial audio idea and apply it to like position on a 2D map and you click on the map to move your avatar over there and now you can hear better the people who are over there. 
but but everybody everybody's has the same effectively the same chat room, but their voice is just attenuated when you're further from them. And I think this would really work, except that I would need to convince everybody at Hypoclock to test this with me. And when I don't even know if it's going to work. <laughs> so, I don't know. Like we also talked about so writing a bot that would log into every chat room and record the audio coming from it and play it back at a lower volume in every other chat room. Like there's so many possible solutions. I feel like this is a – whoever solves this well is, is, is going to uh, help a lot of people. Well, meaning like in a way that doesn't require – like the way Zoom did it where it was very easy to get started and you didn't really have to install anything. I wonder if perhaps we are overthinking the problem and the answer might actually be in establishing better social protocols. Literally no one in a lunchroom, if you're walking up to a table trying to figure out where to sit, like you're not going to sit alone unless you have a book. And you want to sit alone and entertain yourself. But if you're joining a chat room, you join to be with other people. Yes. And so rather than, you know, joining and raising the limit, good social response and, and like, you know, occupying an empty chat room would be, oh, no, I'll break off with you. And we can start a chat room so that it's not empty. If you are familiar with like social psychology, can anyone help me? No one's going to act. But if you point to someone and say, hey, you, can you help me? Yeah. You're more likely to respond. Yeah, I I wonder whether training everybody to respond this way socially would be easier or harder than getting them to try this other chat program. Well, I mean, or sign up ahead of time. That's a pain in the ass, too. Yep. I mean, honestly, you could. You could take, like, I guess, like, a calendar response accepted, denied, and see how many people sign up and then randomly assign them chat rooms. But that's also tedious and boring. <laughs> it is hard to take up all your textbooks and move them to another table. It is not hard to click X and enter. It's two clicks to enter a new chat room. I think in Discord, it might be one because you can't be in more than one at once. Oh, they made it even easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, bad social protocol has led us into all of us wanting to pile into the same space because no one wants to be the odd one out. But if you volunteer, it's like, hey, friend, I'll go over there with you. And so other people can see that there's two people already in there and they can just join us. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to try this. I'm going to be the change. <laughs> be the change you want to see in the world. Exactly. If it's happening this Saturday. Maybe try, if there's like a pinned rules to this uh, meeting, maybe try adding that. Be like, hey, we're going to try something new. If you happen to see this, make sure that you offer to break off when someone new joins. Well, before I can do that, I'm going to have to convince people to set the the room limits back to what they were. <laughs> Uh, are we ready for another topic? Sure. Uh, Steven asks, the Damascus Steel of maze generation algorithms, and then there's a link. The gist of it is that this is an Atari, there's an Atari 2600 game called Entombed, and uh, it involves you, you running through a procedurally generated maze, and the maze generation algorithm is extremely simple, and the person who, who came up with it does not remember how they came up with it because they were drunk. <laughs> so this is reminding me of something I ran into. I wish I could remember more details about it, but there was some snippet of code, I believe written by John Carmack, which had some ridiculous magic number in it. Oh for... yeah, fast inverse square root. Yeah, that's the one. 
There's a Wikipedia article on this. Okay, yeah. Sounds like you know more about it than I do. <laughs> I will I will read the the Wikipedia description. Fast inverse square root is an algorithm that estimates 1 over the square root of x through the reciprocal or multipl- multiplicative inverse of the square root of a 32-bit floating point number in IEEE 754 floating point format. Okay, this is a boring description. <laughs> uh, but what's, what's interesting about this is that in order to calculate an approximated squ- inverse square root of a floating point number, um, they treat the data of the, float- of the 32-bit floating point number as a 32-bit integer. They right shift it bitwise by one and then subtract it from a magic number. And that, and that apparently provides a very approximate uh, inverse square root. And then they do um, a couple iterations of, I believe it's Newton's method of, um, of, of approximating a square root mm-hmm. to make it slightly more accurate. Oh, there's this whole paragraph about investigating. It's not even just, they don't even just talk about the, the history, like who wrote it or who came up with it. They talk about like the process of investigating who wrote it. Oh, have I misattributed this to John Carmack? Well, John Carmack made it famous. Okay, I see. Uh, so, this paragraph lists Gary Tiroli's implementation for the SGI Indigo as, as a possible earliest known use. The SGI Indigo is a um, Silicon Graphics workstation from 1991. So, we still don't really know. We still don't really know who came up with it. Digital archaeology. Yeah, but that, that's, that's a really fascinating just... Uh, it's it's one of those magic tricks that only one person in the world really needs to ever have understood, and not even for a, for a long time. They could have just like understood it for a day, and then everybody else can just like I'll just copy and paste this code because it's so self contained that you don't need to ever like debug it when something else changes and breaks it. Reading this article, this is obviously not something anyone could have ever done at the time, but situations like that were. Uh, the code is so archaic or un- understandable that, like, it requires a heroics of one person to maybe use it. And if you change any line or try to optimize it, you know, the whole program will crash. Honestly, things like that make me so frustrated because <laughs> if you commented your damn code would not run into nearly as many versions of this problem. You'd be surprised how much that happens at Microsoft. You'd be not very no, surprised I, I how much that happens at Microsoft. surprised at all. <laughs> it sounds normal to me. Old Windows code that only one person understands. You better hope they don't retire. Yeah. I feel like that could be a topic on its own. The uh, old programmers who have invented things we use today, retiring and or dying and that knowledge just being lost forever. So we'll have to reinvent it or just be stuck with what we understand of their work. Right. I would be, I would listen to a podcast where those people talk about the thing that only they understand. Yeah. And try to describe it. <laughs> the the fact that I wrote for Glitterman Grove was basically that. Um, I wrote a, a GameFAQ style uh, FAQ for everything I could remember about all the secrets in Glitterman Grove and Frog Fractions 2 that got included on uh, the limited run edition of, of Glitterman Grove. Oh. <gasps> It was a limited run. Yeah, there was there was a there was a limited run boxed edition of Glitterman Grove, oh. and in the box was a floppy disk that had uh, had my fac on it, 
and it was just <laughs> a brain dump. It was like a megabyte long text file that was a brain dump of that everything, everything I could remember about how this game worked and every little esoteric secret just because I wanted to get this stuff written down while it was still in my head because I, I wrote this thing shortly after making the game and by now I don't remember most of it. You did yourself a favor. You wrote yourself a GDC talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel like it's not technical enough to be that, but it's like things like, you know, what when you import a Mass Effect save file, how does that actually feed into the game? <laughs> okay, but good, good slash really weird design decisions also deserve talks of their own, please. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't all have to be technical. That's fair. Although I would absolutely love a technical talk on the Shaving Obama game. <laughs> yeah, and I could give one, yeah. I had a whole R&D project and how to render the shaving cream. And then after that, I was too tired to do the one for how to render his beard because of the beard was just, just kind of lame. But the shaving <laughs> cream tech is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... I am currently, my my passion project, my game project is like WarioWare, but for ang- like low stress anxiety games. Oh, interesting. So like a non-stressful WarioWare, because I, I, having ADHD, absolutely love mini games. I love WarioWare, but yes, I, like many people, of course, get stressed out when the music starts speeding up and you have to go faster and faster and faster or fail. So if I could just have freeform mini games that change up, um, that are designed to be a little more relaxing, that would be really nice. So honestly, this project has been really good so that I work on something different and use a different set of technical skills for each one so I can mix it up. So it's like the same feeling of working on it as I would probably get playing it with being able to mix it up. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Back before I, I was talking about how I learned how to work during the development of Frog Fractions 2, the way I got Frog Fractions done was just by working on a different minigame every time I got bored. Because I had the similar problem of like, I would work on a given project for like a month and then be get bored of it and want to work on something else. Mm-hmm. But if what you're working on is a collection of minigames, then you can do that. You can work on a different thing and it's still part of the same whole. Yep, exactly. Now, how to link them together? That's that's the real challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I could give a talk about this too. Exactly. Yep. That's all of these things are useful. I feel like I'm also interested in hearing a talk from you on the logistics of shipping that many actual floppy disks. <laughs> oh. <laughs> in this day and age. That was something that the limited run folks handled. Oh, uh, okay. They I do see. the manufacturing and the shipping. So we need to get them to give the talk then? Yeah, yep. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised if they have given some sort of logistics talk. But yeah, like when they, they didn't bat an eye when we said, hey, we want to do floppy disks. They were like, okay, we know how to do that. <laughs> oh my God. Apparently they've done it before. Uh, yeah, I think wow. I think they did a, um, a limited run of the, um, the Shenzhen Solitaire game that comes with Shenzhen IO, but they, they, <laughs> they implemented it for MS-DOS. Oh. So, such that it fit on a floppy disk. You know, wow. that, that is so Zachtronics. It very much is. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing that they had trouble with and couldn't do was the, we wanted to do a, um, a scratch and sniff map of text world where every room was a different smell. 
I'm pretty sure that the Rugrats Go Wild movie tried to do exactly that. <laughs> you say tried to, did it not go so well? I mean, the scratch and sniff cards, like how, like that's only going to be so good. We need like, how do I describe this? Like a smell unit add-on for gaming consoles. <laughs> <laughs> Smell-o-vision. We need smell-o-vision. <laughs> yeah, the, the problem with a, a smell add-on to a gaming consoles is that you don't want to smell most games. It would probably cut down on the number of sewer levels in most games. <laughs> but But you could have like a filter setting, like a swear filter, but for smells. Yeah, only the good smells. Sewage now smells like strawberries. Like sandalwood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I would try it. That sounds like fun. That sounds like a, there was a, a game console that I can't remember the name of, but the, the, that ge- console's game, it was like, it was targeted at girls was the trick. Uh, but the console came with a peripheral that could print stickers. Oh, that sounds so great. I have this incredible coworker who also runs something called the Femicom Museum. That's the that's who I heard it from. Yep, Rachel Wiles. She's incredible. And she she's a historian uh, who documents a lot of these games for girls. And honestly, uh, no bad memories. Uh, Party Time Hexalant. Go look her up because her stuff is incredible. It was the Casio Loopy uh, from... It was manufactured in 1995. Uh, apparently only in Japan. So... Why do they get all the cool stuff? You know, I, I, I think um, in this particular case, it's because women are a lot better served there. Like, there's still, like, some very strict gender divide there, but women get as much good stuff as men do, even though it's completely different stuff. Also, the manufacturing is smaller. Yeah, that's probably a fa- factor as well. We're <laughs> uh, we ready for another topic. I think so. The next topic reminds me of Instagram. Alex, your topic is the hidden worlds of each person's living space. So I don't have a huge amount to say about this, but I'm just kind of curious if either of you share the same same kind of feeling I have about a certain thing. So I like to go for walks around my uh, my immediate area, and there's just something about seeing the outside of someone's house that just gives me this sense of curiosity about what is the unique space that's inside there. Like each one is like its own little world that someone has has lived in, has customized, it's tailored to however they do things. And it's just this this sort of hidden from view thing. Yeah, kind of an allegory for their mind. Yeah, exactly. And I've lived in a lot of different houses. There was there were a few years of my life where I was moving on average once per year. It was kind of a strange time. And I don't know, I found that I I would for form surprisingly deep relationships with the the spaces themselves, the places that I had been to. Just looking at old photographs of places I used to live with not even with people in them, just the the rooms, the layouts just touches something deep inside me somehow. Yeah. This little tiny world. Each one is different. So this is the part where you get me to admit that I actively do try to peek into all of my neighbor's windows. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say it. I do it. I want to know what's inside. I always want to go to the second floor of someone's house. We all know it's off limits, but I always want to go up there. (laughs) Yep. So I wonder about the life of, say, a realtor. So they would get to see these spaces all the time. I wonder if it gets Mm -mm. to be dull for them or... No, no. No, that's fake. 
It's all fake. A realtor, they have to go to all of the mocked up houses. They don't get to see what real people look like. They just get to see how the house is architected. Oh, is that how it's done? Well, I guess arguably the realtor who is selling a house might be able to see it before the person's moved out. But most of the time you like want to make sure your clients got all their stuff out of there and then put in fake mock-up stuff, a blow-up bed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's not fun. I don't, I want to see all the stuff that's on people's shelves. There's got to be a job where you, where that, like you could be a, you could be one of the cleaners. You could come clean people's houses. Be a contractor. Yeah. Honestly, I wonder if that is like a window washer or a contractor cleaning. Anytime that you get to go into people's houses for any reason, like, is that like secretly a part you enjoy is getting to like see how people live? Yeah, it's interesting. Like the, I think people see the inside of their houses as kind of sacrosanct as like, this is a private thing that people don't see, but I allow the cleaning service to see it because I don't consider those people to be people. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. (laughs) Yeah. Like like people of a different class, you don't need to worry about them knowing your secrets. So weirdly, they get this privilege that uh, people of a higher class might not so much. Yeah. And I hope that does bring a sense of joy, comfort, Scheidenfreude, I don't know, some sort of double-edged sort of positive side to that. Yeah, I'm I'm very curious like if they if they talk about what they've seen with their other cleaning friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would. Yeah. And I and there's there's like a whole forums dedicated to like, you know, customer not always right where people share their like horrible retail stories and like there's IT versions of that too, like you know, all of these horrible questions that IT professionals get. So how is there not like, oh my God, I tried to clean a house and someone shoved all of their cat's fur down the toilet and... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had a friend who worked, uh, this was in the 90s. He w- worked at uh, Fry's Electronics doing tech support. And he talked about this one guy who would come in every couple of months because his computer would break. And it was because... His computer was completely full of porn (laughs) and they would just be like, they would just format the hard drive and be like, there you go. It's good as new. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, my secret files that are nested so deep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think this guy just didn't understand the concept of your hard drive has a limited amount of space and you can delete things from it. (laughs) Oh, I was saving that for later. Right. Yeah, so something about these being private spaces just makes them more fascinating in a way because so just like not knowing that your hard drive has a limited amount of space or not knowing that you shouldn't shove all your cat hair in the toilet or whatever, just these little things could sneak into someone's habits if they're only done in private that just is not, nobody checks them. They they don't have anyone to, to bounce ideas off of for these things. And there's so much hidden away that's secret and mysterious and just the inside of a house just feels like it kind of sums that up for me. That's interesting. Have you ever seen one and been like, it was I, I could have gone without it. Oh yeah. These, this is a, the, the ultimate boring mystery where like you're fascinated by this until you go inside and it's like, Oh yeah, right. They've, it's another house. 
No, see, I don't feel that way hmm. ever. Almost never. Okay. Even if like the house is pretty much like empty or bare bones, like it feels like, I mean, it's the, it gives me the same feeling of when you just kind of are going from store to store, not really shopping for anything, but just kind of looking, even if you don't really care of what's in the store, just kind of looking at things. It's just nice to see different things. It's like visually stimulating. Yeah, I guess I could see this going either way. It could could turn out to actually be boring with enough exposure, but maybe it would would never never lose its interest. I mean, not everyone is an interior designer because everyone loves looking at pictures of very pretty interior design. But in some sense, like it was designed somehow. Even if the walls are all white, you still put things in certain places that has mm-hmm. there is so much variation in that. Yeah. And then I see all the interior design and I'm like, oh, I would love to live like that, but I want to make exactly zero effort. <laughs> I I moved in to a house and we are very lucky. Um, and we have been living here for, I guess, like a little over a year, year and a half. Um, and I have painted one wall, only one, and the rest of them are white. And I... I would love to paint more walls. I have so much time. Why am I not painting all my walls right now during COVID? (laughs) But after that one wall, I'm like, you know, (laughs) I think I'm good for another two years. Yeah. Painting is something that I tend to underestimate a lot. I moved into this house that I'm in two years ago and planned to paint the entire thing. And I painted zero walls so far. So you're ahead of me right now. (laughs) I mean, also, I want to paint everything colors I want to make everything really bright and tacky, and my wife does not appreciate this. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want a bright orange wall? Like, we're going to paint all the walls purple, and that sounds great. And she's like, no, no, that does not. <laughs> we can divide the house uh, down the middle. <laughs> With painter's tape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's what it's for. You know, we ended up painting that one wall gray. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they make uh, paint that changes color, like disappearing ink. Ooh. <gasps> oh, heat, heat paint. Yeah. Yeah. So you can put your handprint on it. Oh, that's beautiful. Or pour coffee on it. <laughs> <laughs> paint that dries to feel velvety. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they do make whiteboard paint. Yes, they do. And chalkboard mm. paint. I need, a, I need a whiteboard wall. Now I want to paint things. We don't own this house, though. What we did, you can actually pretty easily find at your local hardware store in the lumber section, large boards that have one side of it with the whiteboard stuff. Ah. We screwed one of those into the wall, and that is our giant whiteboard. Nice. Are we ready for for another topic? Sure. Sure. Oh, it's fitting. Yeah, (laughs) Adina, your topic is learning every craft to become the ultimate craft wizard. I feel like this is it's so fitting with everything that I said with wanting to randomize myself by mixing things up all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, the thing is, I, I'm bo- I get bored. Uh, and so I have to have, like, 20,000 projects going on at once. And honestly, when, when COVID hit, I panicked because I'm like, oh, no, now I can't go out to the craft store. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was ready to go and learn 50 new hobbies and all the sewing machines were bought up and uh, 
I couldn't find felting needles. So, so the skills that I had, I had been knitting for years. I am, I am no special knitter. Honestly, my mom far surpassed me. We repicked it up around the same time. And I taught myself a bit of crocheting. So I had like, you know, a million pairs of knitting needles, a bunch of randomly assorted yarn and like a crochet hook. Um, and I'm like, I, I'm ill prepared to be trapped in the house for a long period of time. I want to learn felting. I want to learn macrame. I want to learn all, all a whole bunch of things. And I, I mentioned the sewing machine and like I wanted one, but I knew, uh, no, at this point, I actually hate sewing. I learned this from trying to cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but you enjoy knitting. What would you say like in terms of you, the, the, the lived experience of sewing versus knitting, what's the difference? Oh my God. Worlds, worlds of different. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so knitting is meditative and can be very monotonous. Um, it tedious. I love putting on a show in the background that I can kind of ignore and just knitting so that I am like, like doing two things at once. You're for a lot of things, unless you're doing like complicated lace works or have a really intricate pattern um, or doing like really complicated color switching, like it's, you know, basically two, two basic stitches, <laughs> knitting and purling. Mm -hmm. um, and at a certain point when you get good enough, you can kind of just let your hands go and do its thing with, you know, glancing down to make sure that you're not like slipping under the wrong stitch or something. And same with crocheting, depending on what you're doing. If I've been working on building a blanket full of granny squares, and those are squares made that are basically the same pattern, you go around and around and around, finish, round and around and around, and you finish, and you move on to the next one. And it's very tedious, but very manageable. And sewing is a million more steps with a lot of chances to fuck it up. <laughs> um, you have to make sure you measure all the fabric you're going to need and get a pattern and then trace and cut out the pattern. And if you get any of that wrong, you've already made it so that you're not going to be able to get it to fit. <laughs> and then you have to pin it and sew it. And if you get any of those wrong, it's going to fit wonky um, or just straight up not fit at all. And I tried, I organized a thing a number of months ago over the summer to do a volunteering thing with a local organization to make masks. Um, and I got some loaner sewing machines and distributed them to a couple people in the org. And some people had their own and we all made a bunch of masks uh, that were, you know, distributed to pe uh, people who needed them or organizations that needed them. And I learned from this experience. I tried to make, I had like an old sheet and I was like, maybe I'll make a pair of PJ pants. I, I like found something I could use as elastic and I had, you know, a sheet was plenty of material and I took me so much time because the fabric keeps moving and there's so it, like there's, a, it sets you up to fail in so many ways. Like if you can't get it to sit flat because fabric is so fluid, you're going to cut wrong or, and I, I, I made these pants and they did not fit over my butt. <laughs> Uh, and I was so frustrated because I spent like two days trying to make this. I'm not, I am, I'm so not a sewer. I know how to thread a sewing machine. That's, that's my skill. And I, I made masks and they worked. <laughs> <laughs> they were functional. And that's about all the grade I will give myself on that. You know, I learned that I hated it because I would spend all this time and effort trying to make something and in cosplay something complicated and then it would look like 
terrible on me. I don't look like this anime character at all. Not only do I not look like this anime character, it doesn't even fit me right. <laughs> right. Um, by the third time I tried to pull out all the stitches in a pleated skirt, I was like, you know what? I think I want a different hobby. <laughs> and so I tried felting, which is a hobby that requires stabbing something over and over and over again until it looks the way you want. And it's perfect. It's so perfect. <laughs> it's malleable and you can make mistakes and just kind of poke it in the other direction and it'll fix itself. And it's wonderful. And it turns out I'm really good at it. <laughs> turns out I'm good at stabbing things over and over and over and over again. <laughs> and it's fun. And, and you can make 2D or 3D things. It's, it's such a flexible medium. And you basically take natural animal fibers that are dyed and a needle and then you know, stab them into place. Or if you're making, uh, I guess, more functional stuff, you can wash it into place with soap and water. Wow. And then make like a, a handbag out of it or something like that. Yeah. These, There's so many- these, these phrases, stabbing something into place and washing something into place, I've never heard of this. And so, these, the idea that these two things are possible is fascinating to me. Yeah. Roving is a very interesting material. And you know what's funny? I was like, oh, there's no way that like synthetic fabrics don't also do this. And oh no, they do not. They shred and it's awful. And I tried it and I incorporated it and it was such a mistake into one of my pieces. <laughs> and so it just kind of looks like a pilled sweater. It looks terrible. I'm like rope, natural animal fibers that just naturally go into place. <laughs> right. But being able to try all these different things. Like I tried a little bit of macrame and I realized it was adult friendship bracelets, just tying a bunch of knots. <laughs> uh, I made like a hanging planter and a decorated mirror that hangs and maybe I'll make a wall hanging and it's cord. Cotton cord is pretty cheap to get in bulk. Uh, so that's like an easy enough hobby. And then you could buy dye and then dye the white fibers and then it'll look pretty. It's like, a lot of those are so much simpler steps than sewing, especially because sewing has to frame, hang, hang on your body in a particular way or someone's body in a particular way. Mm-hmm. That said, if you want to learn a really good environmental skill, the fashion industry is one of the biggest polluters. Or I can't even say that. We all know that the biggest polluters are like a handful of 100 companies. But the fashion industry has a huge share of polluting with fast fashion, being able to like buy secondhand and modify clothes to suit your taste and fit your needs is such a valuable skill. I say this not being able to do that. Right. Have you tried picking up crafts? I'm not very good at putting things together physically. Um, I made a paper craft thing for my wife for our anniversary one year and that was neat, but it was just like, it was so fiddly and it was so like, the result wasn't something I was super proud of that I felt like, like, you know what? I'm, I think I'm going to stick to digital. <laughs> like, I feel like I, I have so much finer control of things when I'm putting things together on a computer. And maybe that's just because I've been doing it for so much of my life. But when you talk about like getting good at every craft, as an indie developer who is very comfortable working solo, I kind of feel like I should get good at every aspect of of game development where like I, I can I can truly build all this stuff out without ever talking to anybody. 
So I'm guessing you're a master 3D modeler then. I am not, and that's part of the problem. <laughs> that's something I need to work on. Well, I mean, graphic design, has got to be your passion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's so many w- ways that you can do something equivalent in the digital world, like with 2D and 3D art um, and different types of programming and porting things from system to system. Mm-hmm. There's just so, so many different things um, from art to math. And I think I like crafting, especially fiber arts for the tactile physical feeling that I get of creating something. And I think if I had the capacity to do carpentry, I would really, really love it, but I can't because it requires precision in the same way that sewing does. It's the same problem where you have to measure twice, cut once, and I am just not that person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Recently, my son has started becoming interested in painting. Uh, we got a, a set of finger paints for him and we will occasionally set it up and he'll go to town just smearing paint all over the page. And I've been doing a little bit with him and kind of digging the idea of you know, okay, I've I've done my share of like putting pixels on the screen or using tools in Photoshop to come to a result I want, but the act of taking goo, like physical goop, and turning that into something pleasant to look at, it, it almost feels magical. And that feels like something like if I had infinite time, one of my hobbies would be learning to paint. Especially because paint is a very special medium where the more advanced you get, the more you realize that you can undo or cover up your mistakes by just adding more. <laughs> right. You just add more paint. <laughs> right, right. And you can look at a paint look at a painting and see, look at how thick it is and say, oh, they've really fucked up that part. <laughs> or they I, I don't know, have you ever seen those videos where someone draws an an image and then turns that image into something else so that you can't even see the original image anymore? I feel like people are doing that with their Harry Potter tattoos. You mean like the the blue and black dress or the white and gold dress? Oh, no, that's a great optical illusion. I wasn't even thinking that. <laughs> I was thinking like someone draws a butt, like rudimentary image of a butt and then draws a completely different, like it makes a cow out of it. Oh, oh, so more like the warmest greetings McDonald's coffee cup. Okay, I have to, I have to Google this. Yeah, I haven't seen this, but this sounds very interesting. <laughs> it is... Oh, a few pen strokes. Okay, okay. Oh my god. <laughs> yes, okay, yep. <laughs> I think that's a, uh, a couple fewer lines than you actually need in order to make that image appear, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. And then there's the, the animated GIF that where they poke a hole in the in the cup and coffee starts spilling out. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea of, I think, tactile enjoyment, especially in games, kind of reminds me of a talk that I've given in the past about making custom controllers for games or appreciating custom controllers for games, especially when you think about like arcade games back when arcades flourished and 
being able to jump on a jet ski. And even though like the controls for the game are so rudimentary, it's literally just a D-pad mapped into the game. But like you get to move on the jet ski, move your body yeah. to move that controller. That's such a different That's experience. That's a big deal, yeah. And IoT basically lets you experiment with that. Like indie hardware you get an Arduino, you don't have to be a master electronics engineer to be able to make your own controllers like i made one using made like a really simple demo game to show the experience of like turning off the lights so that your child can go to bed only to have them wake up because a monster appeared um and if you use like a light sensor for that you can just kind of hold your hand over it to turn off the lights or even you could get a switch yeah or a dimmer even as as different things and be able to like flip a switch on the game so i wonder if there's a way to do to to emulate that finger paint feeling yeah that's interesting i I, i'd be very curious about that things i like to think about (laughs) Uh, that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Adina, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Fey Technologist, F-E-Y Technologist. And Alex, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Themsaltook, T-H-E-M-S-A-L-L-T-O-O-K. Uh, and also on YouTube, I guess you just search for Alex Diener or Themsaltook would probably get you to me too. Or you could go to my Twitter account and then I link to my website where I link to my YouTube channel. Sounds good. Wait, what's an example of a game you've played? Uh, well, right now I'm playing Shenzhen IO. Uh, Jim oh. mentioned this earlier, I think. It is a wonderful programming game that gives me a lot of... Tr- it's very challenging as a Let's Play because I am forced to be creative and actually invent a new solution with a microphone in front of my face and some time pressure. Yeah, that sounds real intense. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's a whole lot of fun. I feel like that'd be fun to get a group of people to do because it has like a 40-page manual, right? Mm-hmm. Physical manual. <laughs> That's interesting. A, a pair programming on Shenzhen IO. Yeah. That might I mean, that, that or might TIS work 100. Out. Sure, yeah. Oh, TIS 100, you could uh, give each person a separate uh, CPU cell. Oh. That sounds tricky and interesting. Uh, now it's now this is the Zachtronics podcast, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where you only understand what we're talking about if you've played all these Zachtronics games. All right, uh, thanks so much for being on Topic Lords. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.